Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach. Oh boy, are we uh, are we back? Are we live? Is is twenty this year twenty twenty? I don't even know if if this is real life, but it has been quite some time, uh, Mister Host, since we have been live and been back on the radio. And this year's gone crazy enough where we actually could replace the advice of your position, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, so what say you, sir? How how have things been in in uh in your role during this during this crazy time these unprecedented times unprecedented is the is the perfect word and um we do what we do best which is adapt which is what we've been doing but uh we will certainly get into that on the uh on the other side definitely as to how things have been going with our common ground in the last uh, month and change, maybe close to two months since we've been on, and um, how we've been adapting to the new reality and what it looks like moving forward for us as we go into 2021. Absolutely, yeah, well said. Adaptation and and anyone who who have been long listeners of our show or have heard enough shows through the archives know that uh, being able to adapt um, is something that we preach frequently on the show, not only for the clients who come into our program, but whenever we give kind of a state of the union or talk about the current political climate that our field is operating under, adaptation is always the name of the game. So uh, this is just par for the course for us in some ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's well said. But as I understand it, uh, we've got a special show on tap before the holidays hit their hit this year, uh, as we have a very special guest um, that is uh, going to be joining us um, and talking us through some things. Is that is that correct, Mr. Host? Right. So, one of the things we've spoken about in the now six years that we've been doing this podcast is about the different experiences that people have. Uh, when they are going through treatment, um, there's different experiences. If you go, if you enter treatment as an adolescent 
or an adult. And then there's different experiences just with where you are, you know, physically located, like, um, and uh, what that experience is like. And I think um, from the people that we've spoken to, what we've read, uh, what we see on social media, mind you, uh, that not everybody has had a warm and fuzzy, not, not that anyone had a warm and fuzzy experience, trust me on that one, but uh, in the big, big, big picture, not everybody has a warm, has had a warm experience or, or even a warm remembrance of their experience when they uh, went through treatment. And so the guest we have on today um, didn't have a good experience. Um, and if I, I, I believe he went through Daytop, Texas um, as an adolescent. And um, I recall reading a post that he made. Uh, I don't remember the, the site, um, but um, he, he wrote pretty extensively about his experience, and then he contacted us, and I thought he would be good to have on because I think it's great to always hear the other side, the other experience, and then we can um, just go from there. Um, so let's let's bring Brian on. Uh, Brian, are you there? Let's uh, hear. We should be good now. Um, Brian, can you hear us, sir? I can hear you. Beautiful. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining you. us today. And um, yeah, Mr. Host, uh, we we have some something on tap for Brian here. Some some questions, yeah. and perhaps a little platform for for Brian to share his situation with us. Absolutely. So first of all, welcome, Brian. And um, it's also been a long time coming because we've we've held Brian at bay for a couple of months, uh, while from when. Uh, we first corresponded with each other and um, obviously because of other things going on, but needless to say, here we are. So Brian, just to get the ball rolling, um, we got about an hour or so, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and I want to make sure you get the, the opportunity to uh, speak to your experience in a way that's, that's meaningful. So why don't we start off by telling everyone um, how old you were and where you first entered into treatment in Daytop. Uh, I, I, I was 18 at the time. I'd been 18 for about two months. And this was in March of 1992 when I entered Daytop in Dallas, Texas. And that was a residential program. No, this is an outpatient program. They did okay, have outpatient. a residential. Yeah, I was in the outpatient program, which at the time was in Richardson, Texas. And the residential portion of the program was in a town called Athens, Texas. And I never went to residential. I was okay. an outpatient the whole time. Okay. And so you were 18. And how long uh on average, would you say was was the outpatient program six months, ten months, a year? How long was it? Mm, about uh, oh, all, close to a year and a half in my okay. case. Okay. One of my friends was in the program for over two years before they let him graduate. Okay. And how often did you attend on a weekly basis? Um, five days. A, well, 
five days a week with half a day on Saturdays. So technically it would have been six days a week, but okay. on Saturdays we left after lunch. So were you in like a day treatment? Like, so was it, uh, how, how, when you were there on a per day, how, how long were you there on uh, a daily it was, basis? It was like, it was like a school. It was like a school day in a regular public school. Like I forget the exact operating hours, but you know, a nine, okay. to, nine to five kind of thing. Oh, okay, all right. Nine so to five, that, nine to five type we, thing. We would call that day treatment. So almost everything but residential. <clears throat> Was that a Correct. fair description? Okay. Correct. Um. So at eighteen, I, go ahead. We did encounter groups, we did extended groups, we did a marathon group a couple of times. We did everything except spend the night there. Got it, got it, okay. And at 18, I'm presuming you were out of high school already? No, um, my birthday is in January. My birthday is in January, so I turned 18 in my senior year of high school. Got it, okay, okay. Um. So when you were participating in daytime, you were still in high school. Uh, you could you could say that, but after I'd been at daytop for not very long, I went ahead and took my GED, and therefore, okay. the rest the rest of the time that I was in daytop, everybody else would go to school during certain hours, and they'd be in regular academic type classes. But since I went ahead and took my GED, I took my GED in the last six weeks of my senior year. So Got while it. everybody else while everybody else was at school, uh, you know, I'd answer the phones or just do something else. I didn't. Well, I'd, you, I'd, you know, hmm? no, I was just going to say, you know, something, Brian. There's someone else on the line, Mr. Producer, <laughs> who has the same experience because uh, when he was in uh, Daytop, uh, he also he actually, if I'm not correct, Mr. Producer, you when by the time you entered, you had finished high school, even though you were 17 or so. Um, is that correct, Mr. Producer? Yeah, the, so there's there's some a lot of similarities here. Uh, yes, that is correct. I, I had finished high school, and um, apparently from what the staff had told me, uh, I was the only maybe or the first um, client that they had experienced who had come in that had already finished high school. Uh, and then in addition, my birthday is also in January. So we've got, we've got a lot of similarities. So, so like Brian, uh, if I remember correctly, you were also put to work in various capacities, correct? Yeah, that's correct. By, uh, by one, Mr. Joe Williams and and another, uh, we'll leave his last name out of it, but another gentleman by the name of Tony. Right. So Brian, um, Upon entry into Daytop, before you kind of got grounded and, and find out what's you know what's going on, what the rules were, and so on and so forth, what was your uh, your your view on what your experience was going to be like? Did you have any idea, any prior knowledge about what the outpatient program was going to be like? Very little. I have very okay. little recollection. I have very little recollection in terms of what kind of preconceived ideas I had about the deal going in the door. Okay. 
Okay. Um, I, I, all, all that I really remember is that I really didn't believe that I needed to be there, and I kept telling everybody, I'm not an addict. I don't use heavy drugs. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure this is right for me. And then they'd keep saying things like, well, you're just manipulative or you're in denial or what have you. Who's the everybody? Really is it, is it, was, it, was it daytop people or your family? Who were the people trying to convince you that you needed to be in treatment? Both. Both. Okay. But my, daytop are the ones that really kind of like drummed up the fear in my parents, and they started describing their son as an addict and all this scary stuff. This was sort of the culture of the early 90s and the troubled teen injury and in, in troubled teen industry, rather. Um, and that's how it went. So pretty soon my parents were convinced that I was an addict and I was just bound for, you know, jail, insanity, or death. What is it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. jail, institutions, and death. Yeah, right. right. So pretty soon they had my parents on that bandwagon too, but deep down in my heart, I never believed that. Right. You know, I'm just some kid, I'm just some kid that's smoking weed in the bathroom, and you know I'm not doing the right thing, and I deserved to get in trouble for breaking the rules at school and all that. You know, I'm not saying right. I was a little angel, but they they throw you in there and they start treating you like you're an addict. And I, in my heart, I never believed. I just learned to keep quiet and say what they needed. I, I just learned to keep my mouth shut and get with the program and say basically what they wanted to hear. You know, just to get, just to fu- get stop getting screamed at. You know, right. I find that so interesting because if you remember, Mr. Producer, we used to always say out here in Daytop, California, that look, we don't want the person, the kid who's out there smoking weed in front of the Seven Eleven. That's not who we want coming into treatment. We want right. we we want the real addict coming into treatment um, because beds are so few and far between that. We really wanted it for the folks who really, really needed it. Um, so that's so interesting, um, the description that you used, because we would, have, we, we would have agreed. We would have said, maybe now's not the time. Maybe you're not ready. Um, let's, and, and even more so the fact that if you had turned 18. Um, but I can't deny the fact that, yes, that happens, that um, – Especially, were your parents, let me ask you this question, prior to Daytop's prompting, were your parents leaning in that direction that, hey, we need you to get some help, we think you need help, and then kind of once they got involved with Daytop, that kind of just pushed them over the fence? About about uh, a little more than two years before I had to go to Daytop. Okay. I got in trouble. I got in trouble for smoking weed at school a couple of years before that, and I didn't get in any legal trouble. I was not arrested, but they made us go to some sort of like school district drug education activist thing. We had to go to these special classes for a couple of months, and right. you know, so my my parents knew that I was experimenting with a little bit of this and that. Uh, but they never started treating me like a junkie till my senior year. Can I tell you how it how it went down that I had to go to sure. Daytop? Can I tell you the specifics? Sure. Yep. Um, I forget I forget the na- I forget some of the terminologies, but I was basically I, I was in what amounted to a support group for kids at school that they knew that had troubles. It was like a, it was like some sort of a it was in the, the counselor's office and it was some sort of support group for so-called troubled kids at school, right? 
Now, I had taken some acid that day. I, I took a couple of hits of LSD in the morning, and so by that afternoon, I was still riding high a little bit, right? So here we are in this support group, and I forget the details of how it – I forget how it all broke down because this was 30 years ago, but at a certain point in time – I told the counselor that was running the support group, as a matter of fact, I'm high on acid right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, that's what did it. That's when she said, okay, that's when the school got involved. That's when the school called my parents. That's when they started getting in touch with, like, more um, specialized counselors. And that's when they started treating me like a junkie. Okay. So I was in the so, support group, and I admi- I admitted that I was high, and that's right. what did it. You there? When you yeah yeah when when you eventually were admitted into the daytop program, I think it's fair to say that there was. I don't think resistance is the right word. I think you believe honestly in your heart that, look, I I don't belong here. Um, Did you feel that you didn't have an option to opt out, like to say, no, I'm not going? Did you you feel the pressure that was being brought to bear, especially from, let's say, the parental side, um, was you just – you didn't have an option but to go? Of course, because okay. you know it was. It came down to you either go to this program or you move out and you're on the street. Got it. Either you, they did it like a tough love kind of like uh, what are they like an intervention kind of thing. Like right. either you go through this pro, either you go to this program or you're out the house and we won't talk to you anymore. Okay, I'm gonna jump far ahead just because I don't want to forget asking you this question. As you sit here today, where, where are your parents at with that decision? If you don't mind me asking my, that. Where are my parents today with the decision that they made to put me in daytop? That's what you're asking yes. me? Yeah, yes. I'll answer you this way. One time my father told me years later that he never saw – he, my father, I can't quote him exactly, but he said, I never could understand what all that screaming and confrontation – he said, I could never understand how all that screaming and confrontation was ever really supposed to help anybody, but I didn't know any better or any different at the time, and I trusted these people, so we just went with it because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Now, my parent, my mother has told me that – Oh, were you about to ask me another question? No, you can finish your, finish your point. See, my mother has told me, see, I was diagnosed about 10 years ago as being an adult who lives on the autism spectrum. I was diagnosed with what the medical literature used to call Asperger's syndrome. And in the mm-hmm. DSM, they don't call it Asperger's syndrome anymore. But that's what they called it at the time. So that's how I identify because I was kind of mm. grandfathered in. My mother told me years later that my, I told you what my father told me and my mother told me years later that she felt a certain level of guilt of not getting me more substantial help. I was a little undiagnosed teenager at the time, but nobody knew anything about autism spectrum disorders. 
Right. My mom said, my mom told me that she felt guilty that she put me in that place instead of bringing me to a specialist or something. But mm-hmm. the Asperger's syndrome wasn't even in the medical literature, the American medical literature, until I believe 1993. So even then, even if my mom had brought me to a specialist in 1992, it probably wouldn't have made a whole lot of difference because it didn't even technically exist yet in America, right? Mm-hmm. So does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Um, so let me go back. Um, so you're in Daytop, for better or worse. You're you're in you're participating on a daily basis in the outpatient program, and what? Let's say week one, week two, if you could recall, what is that experience like for you? Is it a shock? Is it, you know, what the hell is going on here? Um, what is it like? The first, I started making friends right away. So you're, let, me, let me make sure I understand. Your question is, you know, what were my initial impressions after the first couple of weeks in Daytop? Yes. I, I remember I made friends with this one guy. Like, I'm right away, like in the first couple of days, right? And he's sort of like my big brother. You know, they kind of buddy you up with somebody that's going to show you the ropes and explain this and that, you know. Tell, he's going to teach you what dropping a slip means. He's going to teach you what an encounter group is. You know, they kind of took me under his wing, and he was kind of like teaching me about how Daytop works, right? Started introducing me to the concept of we're a family here and all this. And but then things got a little weird, and that same guy started telling me all about his addiction to masturbation. So right away, I'm talking to a guy that has like deep-seated issues resulting from sexual trauma, and he's telling me all about these personal things. And I went to one of the counselors. I said, this guy, is, he's, he's a nice guy and stuff, but it's kind of weirding me out. Like, why is he talking about his, his problem with masturbation? You know, I felt like that mm-hmm. was inappropriate, but... I didn't feel threatened or really grossed out by it. I just thought it was weird, right? Mm-hmm. So the counselor goes the counselor goes and has a conversation with him and she says, Look, that's that's very inappropriate. <laughs> and this guy's a good friend of mine to this day, by the way. Mm-hmm. But right away right away I knew that I was in an environment with a bunch of like seriously dysfunctional people and then I said to myself, You know, what the heck am I doing here? Like uh, but this this was 32 years ago. No, this was in 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it, it took me a while to it took a while for the cognitive dissonance to die down before I started justifying my own behavior and the behavior of others till I got sort of like accustomed to Daytop's culture. Um, but I just thought it was very confrontational. It was very brutal. It was uh, like a bullying culture, but they would justify it by saying, well, we've got to get real and you just can't be a baby and you've got to grow up and all this stuff. So right away, I knew I was surrounded by dysfunctional people. And right away, I knew that this was a very confrontational environment that I better get with the program and uh, conform to what I, I learned fast that I better start behaving according to the way they want me to behave if I want to get their approval and if I ultimately want to get out of here. It was all about behavior modification. I better start doing and saying what they expect me to do and say if I want to get out of here and stay out of trouble. So I learned that pretty quick. Does that answer your question? Yes. Let me ask you this. Um, 
Well, let me first make a, a, a comment, and Mr. Producer, you can attest to this. Ryan, one of the things I want you to do, if you haven't done this already, is I want you to listen to the podcast. Uh, it's one of the first ones we did with uh, Dr. David Deitch on the birth of Daytop. Um, so he's the co-founder. I think you'll find it very interesting what he talks about. One of the things that he found as a challenge as the program grew, evolved, and so on and so forth is obviously you're you're dealing with and working with human beings. And I'll use his term. This is not my term. This is his term. He says one of the things they realize is that they end up with a lot of what he called little fascists um, that are working for the program as counselors and so on and so forth. Why is that important? Why is that important? As Mr. Producer knows, when I hear you talk about the confrontational style of the program, it so grates on me because I was never trained. I never experienced nor was I trained in that, that manner. So I didn't experience it. I wasn't trained that way, and so on and so forth. So you're not the first person, by the way. Many people have spoken to this, you know, and, and even people who d- describe the program as being a confrontational program. I always wonder, where the hell is that coming from? Because that wasn't my experience, and I wasn't trained that way as a counselor. But it exists, and it just goes right back. And, and, and on, until David Deitch had mentioned that, about the little fascists, that's when it really hit me about how you have humans working with humans and those humans bring their own, you know, frailties and issues and traumas and what you, you you know, all of that to the table. And if it's unresolved, they bring all that to the table as they're working with other humans. Um, I never understood and I, I would agree with you 100%. I don't know how it could be effective if you're screaming at people and you are, as using your term, bullying them and badgering them. Mr. Medusa, you could speak to your experience. I'm sure you agree. This is so foreign to us that it's just unnerving. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no. So I would certainly, certainly have to agree that um, to the host's point – um, the like the concept of the program and the therapeutic community and what it was going to be and how it was to be implemented um, is we we've likened it on other shows to the the child's game of a, I believe it's called telephone or operator where you get a bunch of kids to sit in a circle and you whisper something into the first kid's ear and he's supposed to whisper it into the next kid's ear and it goes all the way around the circle. And then the last person in the circle says what it is they heard. And it is always, or generally wildly different from what the first person heard. Um, And so you know, this theme has, we've heard stories from Daytop either in different eras or different facilities um, where it seems like in some people's experiences, it was far from its, um, uh, you know, inception and the original intent behind it. Um, And so, 
yeah, what what you're describing and what you heard definitely sounds like, you know, I, I mean, you mentioned a bunch of things that are nostalgic to me or, or that bring me back when I hear you talk about extended groups and marathon groups and your big brother teaching you how to drop a slip. And all of these things are, are certainly tools of the TC and things that anybody who's got any familiarity with Daytop will certainly recall um, and have their own memories of how those things went. So on one hand, you certainly heard or experienced some of the, the fundamental ideologies and tools of the program, but how those were implemented was so far from how they were supposed to be implemented. And the, the issue is generally human intervention, um, where, where you get people who have brought their own interpretation to the structure, to the table, and start implementing it how they see fit versus how it's just meant to be and allowing it to be itself. Um, and, and then it, it just completely derails and alters the process, um, which is, you know, a, a part of maybe what it sounds like um, your experience was versus perhaps um, how it should have been is, is how I'm hearing it and how I'm taking it. The bottom line is that to this day, sitting here in 2020, I regard Daytop, at least at the way it used to exist. That, that Daytop that I remember from 30 years ago was a cult. It, in social psychological terms, I would call that a destructive, abusive group. And let me tell you why. There's three criteria that were defined by Robert J. Lifton by which a healthy group can be discerned from an unhealthy group. Okay, number one would be some sort of charismatic authority figure. We have him in the form of the Monsignor. Number two would be a process of behavior modification slash thought reform in place. Number three would be various forms of exploitation. If all three of those characteristics are present, then we're talking about a destructive group, a destructive cult, an abusive group. Now, it doesn't matter if it's a religious organization that, you know, a cult could be a football team under the right or wrong circumstances. So I, I regard Daytop today, that the Daytop I remember, I think of that as what I would call a sobriety cult. Like they had this transcendental ideology that involved creating a world where nobody ever wanted to get high or drunk anymore. And then we live in, they said, daytop for a drug-free world. Now, looking back in 2020, I think that's the goofiest idea ever, to create a world where <laughs> nobody ever wants to get high anymore. It's unworkable. It's unpracticable. What does it even mean to create a drug-free world? So, you know, in sociological terms, they, they had what we would call a transcendental ideology. And creating that transcendental ideology involved creating a drug-free world does that so it was a destructive group it's a it's an inherently abusive organization now at least you could say well at least they're getting people sober and people are staying sober so i would say well yeah maybe they're getting sober and staying sober but at what internal cost to the individual all they do is change behavior and teach you to behave in more acceptable ways, but they don't really deal with anything under the surface very deeply. So today, I and have we, a degree in psychology. Pardon? 
I was just going to say, so we wouldn't classify that as treatment because if you're not dealing with the root causes of the person's behavior or thinking processes, then you're just going to get conformity for the period of time that they're with you. You're not going to really teach them anything or get them to have some kind of um, understanding of you know, why they do what they do or why they think how they think, especially no, no. prior to the age of so, 25, in my opinion. You know, see, you, you also <laughs> got to remember, with all respect, of course, you also have to remember that 1992 is the year, if I'm not mistaken, 1992 is the year that the Monsignor's book came out called You Can't Do It, Your, you can't do it Yourself, You Can't Do It On Your Own or something like that. So all Yeah, I think, I think around there somewhere. Yeah, 92. So all the counselors were all excited that the Monsignor had just written this book, and that was sort of like their, you know, in loose terms, that was sort of like the Bible of Daytop in 1992, the way I remember it. So they would refer to the Monsignor's book all the time, and the Monsignor very explicitly says, people don't really have a drug problem, people have a baby problem. So they were treating this like a bunch of babies, and they were screaming, all it was was just a behavior modification regimen that was designed to get us to act right and to feel guilty if we weren't acting in such a way that would earn us some kind of approval or at least avoid getting screamed at and punished and put in the chair. It was a very inherently abusive program. And so I don't know a single person. I've kept in touch with a bunch of people. I don't know a single person from Daytop in the early 90s that has stayed sober to this day including myself, you know, I don't have a drug problem, but I, you know, I smoke a little bit here and, you know, I have PTSD, I have Asperger's, I've got certain issues. And to this day, I use, I I use marijuana because I consider it, uh, you know, a medicinal healing substance, but I, I I don't, I, I don't, so I don't know a single person to this day that was in Daytop back in those days that had stayed sober continually for 30 years. They all went, they all fell off the wagon, all of them. Some of them now, are you, even worse. So just to, let me just interrupt for a second. Just to clarify, you're speaking of the folks that you in, um, are familiar with in, in that particular Daytop program. Correct. The people, the people that I was in quote unquote treatment with, I stayed in right. touch with a bunch of them, and right. I don't know a single one that stayed sober. I used to party like crazy with some of these people. Okay. Of course, after we felt we 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 got to be roommates, it's a long story, but some of us got to be very close. We began right. to get we were we were roommates, and then when we fell off the wagon, we fell off the wagon together, and then everybody was twice as worse off, uh, twice as bad off as they were in the first place. Well, let me ask you this question. Are you open to the reality that that is not, in certain areas of the country, that that is not everybody's experience? Sure. I've met Daytop graduates. I've met Daytop graduates that graduated in New York City or, you know, people that went through, not New York City, but people, New York State, I should say, right? Right, right. I've searched, I've, I've searched out Daytop alumni online in order to network with people. And right. I must admit that people like me that regard Daytop as an inherently uh, abusive and destructive cultic organization are the minority. 
most DATOP graduates that I've met, especially the ones that graduated from residential, like the old school New York DATOP people, uh-huh. they'll say, they'll say, yeah, it was tough, and they were brutal, and they would scream at us, and they would use sleep deprivation, and they would work us in the snow. But, you know, I was a hardcore addict, and I needed that. Like people, like, so if you're working with a hardcore heroin addict or a hardcore crack addict, like a real addict, somebody with a genuine well, substance abuse problem, I mean, some of that, some of those techniques might be justified, but a bunch of 12, actually, 18-year-olds that are, sorry? Yeah, act, yeah I was going to say, actually, those techniques didn't work because what worked from 1963 through – Let's say let's say 1980, um, with the heroin addicts, did not work with the cocaine and crack addicts, and they had and they had to evolve the program, because what you can do to a heroin addict you could not do to a crack addict, and they had to learn yeah, the that the hard that, way. The people that I was in daytime with the counselors, and this is how it went down. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, did I interrupt? Am I being rude? No, no, go ahead. Okay, all right, so. All the counselors that came to open up Daytop in Texas were from New York, New York City. Right. So yep. these were all urban – these were all former junkies, hardcore, hardcore addicts that came from New York City to open up Daytop. They were running the show on a bunch of kids like they still thought they were in the Bronx, and that was completely inappropriate. You know what I mean? No, I, I, I agree 100% because – I came from New York. I came from New York and went to California. And one of the advantages I had, other than the fact of who I was trained by, but one of the advantages is that California was set up very different. There was already a structure. I'm not talking about data. I'm talking about the state. There was already a structure in terms of how adolescent residential programs had to operate within. And so there was a lot more professionalism professional staff that were required to be a part of the programming, which was unheard of for daytop. Because Oh, with, no, in Texas... Go ahead. I'm sorry? In Texas, in the early 90s, it was completely unregulated, and they could basically do whatever exactly. they wanted. Right, and that wasn't the case in California. And so we wouldn't have... We went, so that's why my comment about when, when you said about them not really digging deeper into trauma and other issues that a person may have, we don't consider – when that doesn't happen, we don't consider that treatment. See, we don't I, consider I, that in treatment. Retrospect, I've got a degree in psychology now. I've been in a lot of counseling and therapy myself. I can see it clearly for what it is, and I've healed from a lot of it. And all it really was was just – thought reform techniques and behavior modification techniques that were designed to at least get you behaving as if you were interested in being sober. But they didn't really go any, they went about an inch deep under the surface. It was very shallow. Now I will tell you this, and it's funny how this ties together. Mr. Producer, you remember in the, probably around the same time that they were starting on Daytop Texas, they were introducing in New York, uh, this is when mental health treatment started first coming into Daytop. And, I don't, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Brian, but you can probably surmise this. Daytop was very, very resistant, very resistant. And as a matter of fact, the first psychologist they had, oh, my goodness, they, they just treated this person terribly. Um, 
and probably at the time when I was leaving New York, this this would have been um, mid the first quarter of 1991. Um, is when it was really starting to get a foothold on. Um, so prior to that, same thing, unregulated, mostly ex addicts doing 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 the counseling and so on and so forth. And it's funny how in I don't know. Ten years from 1992, probably to 2002, uh, where they came. But the beginning, they were very extremely resistant to getting any quote-unquote professionalized help in there for the um, for the clients. Um, and take that a step further. And this was the beauty back then. I won't say now, but back then of how California was set up because there was a place for the professional staff to do their clinical work, and there was a place for the TC staff to do their work. And they come together to both help treat the the client. Now, obviously, at that time, we didn't know that that was groundbreaking because that was just the way California was set up. So you had no choice. You had to do that. Um, so it's interesting to hear. I, I thought there would be some, some somewhat of a history lesson talking to you, Brian, because we didn't know. We knew very little about Daytop Texas other than some of the people that went to work there, some of the people that were in charge there, uh, maybe where they were located. And we know they had a residential program. We know they had an outpatient program. But other than that, um, you're probably the first person that we've spoken to that actually lived going through Daytop, Texas. By the time they got done with me, I was like a zero with a rim rubbed out, and my boundaries had been totally obliterated. I had no boundaries. No boundaries. What do you mean? And I, Explain that. I, w- I had been so uh, – I had been so – um, immersed and acclimated to Daytopian culture mm-hmm. that first of all it created a whole bunch of very codependent relationships okay mm-hmm. so some of us after we graduated Daytop we stuck together we became roommates we were roommates for four or five years after Daytop okay then when we fell off the wagon we fell off the wagon together so everything was in a very it made me dependent upon groups and it made me dependent upon trying to identify myself as a member of a group it it, it stunted my individuation i'd been so um acclimated to daytopian thinking i didn't realize that regular civilians so to speak that had never been through that kind of environment it's not appropriate to uh talk about your feelings in certain contexts it's not appropriate to and then you've got the asperger's the undiagnosed autism on top of it all so i didn't realize that right it's not okay it's not okay to use confrontational tactics in certain situations or it's not okay to start talking about your feelings in certain situations or that it is okay to say, well, I want to be alone now. I don't feel like being around all these people. I don't feel like going to another meeting. I don't, it's okay to be an individual. So what they did was I would compare it to performing brain surgery with a knife, a fork and a spoon. Like you you get a bunch of kids and you try to lobotomize them with a knife, a fork, and a spoon, and you botch the job because you mm-hmm. have such crappy implements. 
And then not only that, but because it was a sterile, it's not a sterile environment in the first place, right? <laughs> so even after you do your crappy surgery with your knife, your fork, and your spoon, since it wasn't a sterile environment, everybody gets infections, then everybody's worse off than they were in the first place. The treatment, the so-called treatment made us worse. Does that make sense? It does make sense. What was the age range of the clients in the outpatient program? 12 to 18. I was the old man of the group. Okay. And really, they wanted to hurry, hurry up and graduate me as soon as possible because I was about to turn 19, and then I was just out of bounds. So part of I feel a little bit shortchanged, frankly, because they kind of excavated. <laughs> one, one, one guy I knew, he, they had him for over two years. I'll introduce you if you want, if he's willing to talk to you. He's, he's my brother. He, we're very close friends to this day. One mm-hmm. guy, he was in there for over two years before they graduated him. Mm-hmm. I was already 18, so they just hurried my butt out. <laughs> so at some point, at some point, just to refresh, you kind of figured out, let me – act a certain way, be a certain way, just to get by, just to comply, just to give them what they want. And are you saying that this kind of just went on all the way through the end of, until you left treatment or um, how did your transitioning out of that five day, six day a week experience, how did that happen? I'm not sure I understand your question. How did, how did I break free from that mindset? In other words, no, not the mindset yet, but just the, let's say, just the physical aspect of going to the outpatient program on a six, five to six day a week basis. How did you, at what point did you transition down out of that to, I don't know, once a week or whatever the case may be? Or did it just oh, just end? Oh, oh, you mean the second stage and then the graduation? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so um, let me think. I was on, I was on. I forget some of the words right now. I'll call it first stage, right? Mm-hmm. I was on first stage. See, I split for a couple of months, and then I went back, so it's a little bit broken up. But basically, okay. basically, I was on first stage for about a year or 10 months. I want to say from August until the next April. So, no, that would be about eight months, nine months. I was on first stage, and then I was on second stage for – about an equal period of time, you know, so I was on first stage for about eight months and then I was on second stage for about the same. And then I forget my friends have better records than I do, but then we graduated in the summer of 94, I want to say mm-hmm. 93, mm-hmm. 94 from what, what at the time was called the dresser building. See, they started transitioning out of Daytop in Richardson, then they started moving into the Dresser Building, which is in downtown Dallas. So I graduated. So then they started moving the whole outpatient thing to the Dresser Building, and they shut down, shut Richardson down. So I was on first stage for several months, and then they started getting the Dresser Building ready, and then I was on second stage for another several months. And then while I was on second stage, some of the people that I was in Daytop with became room, we became roommates. And so then it was like you bring, bring Daytop home, and then we would go to right. AA meetings and stuff together. I used to go to AA meetings. I never even drank. Like I literally didn't even like alcohol. I did not enjoy the effect of alcohol, and I did not enjoy getting drunk. It was not fun to me. But I would go to AA meetings anyway, and I would call myself an alcoholic anyway. 
just to go with the program. So even, even, you know, even when we were on second stage and we were roommates, we were still very much committed to a, 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 a Daytopian sober lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So that happened for another several months. And then after, oh, I'd say I lasted about another, about a, about a year after I graduated, 10 months or a year after I graduated, I fell off the wagon and started smoking weed again. So does that answer your question? It does. So the, the big question is, which you've already kind of brought up is, so at what point, what age would you say um, where you started to have a mind shift in terms of breaking away from that experience mentally, where, where, wherever you were mentally in that experience and breaking away to a point where you can take a, a big picture look at that experience you were just living and, and properly assess it for what it was, good, bad, or ugly. When did that happen? What you. age were you, et cetera? This was about 12 years ago. I was about 34, and what happened was, see, to make a long story short, um, I became a religious. Uh, I became a religion addict. I became. I, I developed. I developed a. You know, one can be. You know, one can become addicted to just about anything, as you well know. Mm-hmm. I became a religious addict. I became a very compulsive, very devout, almost fanatical Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because I, I see the religious addiction as an extension of the group addiction that Daytop started me down the path of. I became addicted mm-hmm. to groups. Um, so then I became a religion addict, and I, I joined a bona fide religious cult. So then I was in treatment again in a really good therapeutic community program called Meadowhaven, which is in Lakeville, Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. Meadowhaven is a place... Meadowhaven, it's about to shut down. They're not really operating anymore the way they used to. But Daytop was a therapeutic community residential program designed just for former members of abusive groups. It's like ex-cult member rehab. Everybody Mm. in there was in a cult. Everybody in there was in a cult, right? Mm -hmm. And I went in there because of the relationship that I had with my church. I went in there because... I was part of this nasty Bible-based organization. So then I was at, I was in Meadowhaven for about four months, and it was Christmas week. It was the week of Christmas. It was like a week before Christmas in 2008, and I was sitting there in the TV room because they give you homework. It's a very intensive program. They give you books to read and worksheets and you're in session three or four times a week, and it's very, it's a very intense program. And I was sitting there doing some work on my boundaries worksheets and doing reading about boundaries and what happened in your youth and all these kinds of related topics. And then I started thinking about my experience in Daytop. I started thinking about the Daytop philosophy. I am here because there is no refuge, finally, from myself. And then it was like it was like it was like somebody flipped the switch. And then I understood. I said, Oh my God, it all started in daytop. Like, if you want to look at religious addiction, like they say that marijuana is a gateway drug, right? Mm-hmm. 
Daytop was my gateway drug that got me started down the path to hardcore religious crack. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It was Daytop that got me started that, because they're the ones that had reduced or erased my boundaries, turned me into a zero with the rim rubbed out. They're the ones that sort of conditioned me to believe that I cannot exist unless I'm a member of a group because I have no personal autonomy. It all started in Daytop. Daytop was the last place a kid like me needed to be. And Would I, you I, say... I, I'm, what's that? No, finish your thought. I am friends with the one of my counselors in Daytop. Her name is Michelle. I won't mention her last name. Eventually became the director. After Mike Gorman died, she was appointed director of Daytop in Dallas. And she, or at least the Daytop the facility where I was. Right? I know who she and is. I'm friends with, yeah, I'm friends with Michelle today. Mm-hmm. Like I talked mm-hmm. to her like last week. Mm-hmm. And she, she told me it made me feel a lot better. She said, you know, the things we were doing 30 years ago would never happen today. And a kid like you definitely did not belong belong there. Like she didn't mm-hmm. exactly apologize to me. I never felt abused by Michelle at all. Right. Okay. Other other devo- other other uh, counselors, I definitely did feel abused by because they were abusive. But Michelle was always cool, and she she reassured me and she said, "Well, the things we were doing 30 years ago, for one thing, the things we did back then would never happen today, and for another thing." you definitely did not deserve to be or belong in that environment to begin with. And that made me feel a lot better. You know. So I, let me just say a couple of things. I agree with her in one respect when she says that you didn't belong there, but I'm not sure if I a hundred percent agree with when she talks about the things, maybe, and maybe what she's saying specific to them might be true because Mr. Producer, I think you could speak to this, um, um, we would, by the way, Brian, just so you know, we don't, we did an adolescent program for 26 years and we stopped in 2014. So we haven't done an adolescent program in six years. We just do adults now, but, um, you know, part of the reason why it pains me when I hear stories like this and not so much your story, but when people speak about their experience and I'm thinking, as they're talking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, why was it, why was it that way? Um, why was the person treated that way and so on and so forth because Mr. Producer you could speak to your own personal experience would you say and I know it wasn't in the early 90s but I was there in the early 90s the adolescent program and it would be hard for me to imagine the adolescent program being conducted in a manner like the adult program in Parksville, New York was in the late 80s and early 90s. It would just be hard for me to imagine that because that we certainly, I came from that and we certainly did nothing near that with the kids that we had, which leads me to a question for you, Brian, before you say something, Mr. Producer, because I don't want to forget my question to you. And that is looking back now, uh, especially with um, the experience you have from a psychological perspective, do you think that the manner in which they conducted Daytop Texas or the 
the program you were at was worse because of the age group they were dealing with and or whether it was adults or adolescents, it would it would still be terrible. Whether it was adults or whether it was adults or kids, it was still terrible. What okay. they were doing, it was completely inappropriate, in my opinion, for any age group. Okay. Because I because from my point of view, from my point of view, use of behavior modification and thought reform techniques, no matter how well intentioned their application might be, is inherently abusive. I, I don't believe in behavior modification. I don't believe in thought reform. I think that even if you're doing it to so-called help somebody, that you're abusing them, even though you're doing it with a clean conscience. Does that does that answer your question? Yes, but I have a follow-up. So I'm going to use an analogy, and you tell me what the out is, O-U-T, what the out is. Would you say – would you would – you, Compare that to what parents do with young children. Let me answer you like this. I don't believe that the means ever justify the ends, especially when you are dealing with or supposedly serving a vulnerable population. I don't believe that the means justify the ends. So, I mean, one could argue that – so is that the same thing that parents do with their children – some parents, I'm sure. I don't personally have any kids. I can't really speak to my own experience as a parent because I'm not one, but I'm sure for some parents uh, – is that your, so your question is, is this the same sort of thing that parents do to their children? It's certainly not what my parents – it's certainly not how they raised me. No, I think – let me let me clarify. <laughs> I, think, I think what I'm – specifically in terms of when you say behavior – because ultimately – I, I, I would think parents are always trying to, in some respect, get their children, especially when they reach, like, let's say, latency age, uh, early adolescence and into adolescence, trying to get them to, you know, behave, listen to the teacher, don't call out no. in class, you know, things of that nature, they right? Daytop was basically saying, we don't like the way you're behaving, so stop it and behave this way or else. So if a parent did that to their kid, yeah, I would say that that would be abusive. I don't like the way you're behaving, so you stop it. You behave this way that I approve of or else. That's daytop. Okay, so if you had – let's say you had children, a seven-year-old, let's say, seven-year-old boy who was, I don't know, throwing rocks at the the window, whatever, what would you say to them to get them to stop? After, let's say, they've done it two times without stopping, what what would you say differently? How would you handle that as a parent? How would I handle that? Yeah. Okay, let me make sure I understand. So if I had a little seven-year-old boy that was throwing rocks at a window and I saw him do it a couple of times. No, you saw him do it once. No, let's say you saw him do it once. No, let's say he didn't break the window. But you saw him do it once and you said, hey – that's not appropriate. Don't throw rocks at windows. And then you saw them do it two more times. How would you continue to try and get them to stop doing that? I would try to get him to put himself in somebody else's shoes, and I would say something like, well, how would you like it if somebody threw a rock through your window? Mm-hmm. I bet you wouldn't like that very much, would you? 
I would try to I would try to um, just for lack of a better word, I would try to exploit his sense of his sense of empathy. Not exploit, but you know what I mean. I would try to like get him to I, I would try to get him to think in terms of empathy and say, well, <laughs> if somebody threw a rock through your bedroom window, that'd probably scare you, wouldn't it? Like you wouldn't. Why would you want to do that to somebody else? Well, well, I have to tell you on a personal note. If people were to judge me on how I parented my two daughters, they would say, man, you are a model for positive parenting and, and just everything. If they were to judge me on how I am parenting my two grandsons, well, not parenting, but the, the, the difficulty between the uh, parenting, the, the two, the, the, between the two, um, they would probably say, man, you are a terrible parent. I don't, Brian, I don't know if I'm going to be alive next year if, if, if these boys get the best of me. But that's a whole other subject. Um, Mr. Producer, you went through Daytop as an adolescent. What was your experience? Yeah, so um, I would say that um, in, in speaking to Brian's experience, some of the crossover <clears throat> and similarity um, was a feeling of, um, you know, a, a quote-unquote confrontational environment um, because confrontation, also known as carefrontation, some of the puns that we used, um, was certainly, you know, accountability and accountability via the avenue of confrontation was um, certainly a theme um, that existed within, within the TC structure. Um, and then uh, obviously definitely um, a, uh, a component of behavioral modification. And so similar to um, the conversation you two were having about the attempt to um, get uh, get a little boy to stop throwing rocks at windows because generally um, it's an unacceptable behavior or it's dangerous. It could lead to people getting hurt. I think Brian said, you know, uh, to invoke the feeling of empathy in the little one, you might say, hey, wouldn't you be scared if somebody did that? And so that's maybe not what you want to be doing. Um, those are all forms of behavioral modification. The point is there, there's a behavior being demonstrated that is inappropriate or unacceptable. And so there's an authority figure um, in, in the situation you two were talking about. It's a parent um, in the situation of daytop. It might've been staff um, where uh, you see the inappropriate behavior and you're doing what you can to curb that. Um, and I think that that happens regularly in programs and in parenting in the real world. Can I interrupt him? Can I interrupt a moment, please? Yeah, 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 sure. What they, what, what they were doing in Daytop in, in technical language was classical and operant conditioning. They were they were giving rewards and punishments based upon acceptable or unacceptable behaviors. And I think that that's an unethical. You are right in that that is a form of behavior modification. But when you're talking about conditioning certain behaviors or punishing certain behaviors or withholding affection for certain behaviors, that's where it becomes abusive. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So not, and I, I would agree with that. And then I would say potentially that is where our experience differs in that I, I never got the sense or, or in my own experience 
um, never got the feeling that um, if I was doing something I shouldn't be doing, that there was any quote unquote affection being withheld. So, so I never felt like when I was receiving a consequence for behaving how I shouldn't have been behaving or breaking a rule, for example, um, I never left that consequence, um, which might have been in the form of uh, a haircut or a dealt with the, the other things that, that the, the tools um, that we had a, a while back. Um, I never recall leaving um, that session of accountability not cared for. Like I, I always generally felt like the individuals who were in my haircut panel, um, the staff who was um, gearing or running the haircut, um, and then my peers who were on the panel, um, that while they were addressing me for my behavior and, and giving me feedback as to why it was inappropriate um, and, and why it needed to change, that when I would um, walk, you know, uh, leave, the, leave the haircut, holding my haircut chair and walk it back to where we put the haircut chairs, that um, I was never left with the feeling that that came out of a place where there wasn't some sort of genuine care or attempt to see um, my behavior change. And, and so I think that translated generally in my experience, again, and, you know, my experience is unique to me. Um, but, but I think that translated to an overwhelming or an overall feeling that um, I am in a place where there are people, um, both my peers and staff alike, who care about seeing me change my life for the better. And I think once in my eyes that the foundation was rooted in that um, type of stance that I then accepted, um, you know, whatever came my way based on, on how I might have be, been behaving in any particular day or in any particular week. Um, because I, I I did get this genuine sense that people were vested in my making changes for the better. So so there was there was a level of care and empathy there for me as an individual, um, and that led to um, uh, a general acceptance of the process and how it presented itself to me. Um, and I and I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brian, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but, but what I'm hearing you say was your experience um, in where we have similar experiences where that begins to branch off and where we begin to travel down different paths is that um, – it, it perhaps it felt like the angle or the approach that you experienced was rooted in, in something that wasn't healthy, some, some form of control or it um, was some sort of impure motive. Um, so with your, with, with the idea that the ends doesn't justify the means, um, which is very true when you study psychology, that the, the means didn't feel like they were coming from a very pure or righteous place in your experience. Um, and while they might've been the same means or the same tools, um, in my experience, I, I do recall feeling like it, it came from, um, 
from an angle or a position of general general care for my well-being. Let me tell you a little story, okay? Yeah. This was at Gaudenzia of 1993. Gaudenzia, look, this guy is dropping the – I love it. Continue. See, I'm bona fide. I'm bona fide. I'm, I, I, I'm definitely bona fide ex-Datopian. Yeah, for sure. Gaudenzia. I haven't heard Gaudenzia mentioned in I don't know how long, so it feels just kind of cool to hear somebody talk about it. But anyway, yeah, go, go ahead with the story. Part of the operations, I forget some of the details, but part of the operations of Daytop Dallas were still in Richardson at the time, but a lot of the operations of Daytop in Dallas were located and things were happening out of the dresser building at the time. Um, I went to Gaudenzia in 1993, and they had the Gaudenzia dance at the dresser building. But I, was, I went to second stage meetings in Richardson. So... I was, I'm a shy, introverted, inhibited type of person, and everybody's dancing around and having fun, and people are trying to get me to dance, but I'm a little bit uptight, and I'm shy, and I'm like, no, no, that's okay. I, I don't want to dance. I'll just hang out. <laughs> Girls were trying to get me to dance, right? I was like, no, nah, that's okay, and I just sort of stood back in the sidelines and talked with my friends and hung out just because I felt, like, inhibited about dancing. So then Monday morning... In morning meeting, I'm not sure if I was on second stage by that time or not because we were in morning meeting. But anyway, Monday morning in morning meeting, the counselor named Marcy was running that morning meeting, and she said, well, you know, Brian, we noticed that you weren't dancing, and we wonder why not. And I said, well, just because I don't want to. I'm not a good dancer, so why should I embarrass myself, right? Like if I'm not good at it, then why should I do it? She said, well, you know, we can, we can tell that you have issues around, um, you know, inhibition and shame. You know, we, we, you have these issues around not wanting to dance. So now what we're going to do, so this was when Marcy turned into an abusive B word. She said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to turn on some music, and morning meeting will not be over until you come up in front of the family and dance for us. And we're doing this because we care about you. And we, we're doing this because we want to help you overcome your issues. We're doing this because we want to help you. So I, I resisted. I said, no, I, I'm not going to dance. I don't want to do it. She said, okay, you know, we can just sit here until lunchtime if you want. You're holding up the day. All you got to do is get up there and dance. And that was one of the most shaming, um, damaging experiences of my early adulthood because – some other people came up there and they said, look, it's easy. You don't have to be embarrassed. Why don't you dance? And so some other people they got up and they started dancing. And I'm just standing there embarrassed as hell, like standing in front of the family. And Mar Marcy's like, nobody's leaving until you dance. So they turned up the music real loud and I started dancing around like a spaz just to get her to shut up and leave me alone. And then she said, well, we're only doing this because we love you and we want to help you. So they can justify all kinds of bullying behavior in the name of your issues and helping you get better in love. But in reality, Marcy was just a bully that was trying to embarrass me in front of a bunch of people. And it didn't really help my issues at all. And in fact, it just made it worse. So that woman had no business. She didn't know what she was doing from a psychological point of view. She had no business being in charge of a bunch of kids. 
they used to tell me that the, I was such a space cadet. Like, I, I'm an undiagnosed autistic guy, right? They told me that the reason I'm such a space cadet is, number one, because I'm such a baby, and number two, because I gave myself brain damage from doing too much acid. That's what I took away from the Daytop experience, a, a bunch of self a bunch of shame and self, you know, generally not liking myself. I'm thinking for years I thought to myself, man, I did too many drugs when I was young. They were right in Daytop, and I just fried my brain because I took too much LSD. And then I was 34 years old, 36, I take it back. I was 36 years old before I got my diagnosis. And these bastards, pardon my life, I almost said a bad word. These people were wrong all along. I was not a space cadet. I was a non-diagnosed autistic guy, and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So they can justify all kinds of crap by saying, well, we love you. No. No, you really don't. Well, yeah, that's evident, because someone who actually loves you would, would, would not go out of their way to embarrass you. <clears throat> right. But that's a true um, story. Marcy really, Marcy did that, and I, 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 I feel embarrassed about that to this day. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, that's a true story. So, um, we got about three minutes. I guess what I want to know at this point is when you had that for lack of a better term, that awakening, when that light bulb went off and you, where this kind of really started for you, um, how, and it might still be a work in progress, but how, how did you start to put the pieces back together? And not, not only put the pieces back together, how did you start the process of putting the pieces together or putting the puzzle pieces together as you went about figuring it, figuring it out? Um, you got your uh, uh, diagnosis and all that stuff. So how did all that work to bring you to where you are today? When I started understanding and I started reading as much as I could about the history of Daytop. Mm-hmm. And when I, be- when I began to understand when I, and I'd heard them, I remember back in the nineties, you know, hearing whispers of this place called Synanon and they were talking mm-hmm. about, it was kind of like, Peripheral, and I'd hear like rumors about this thing called Synanon. I remember hearing about that when I was a kid. But when I really started reading, I read Sofera House. I read. Um, I started studying the history of Synanon and the way that it developed into Daytop. And when I began to understand that Daytop was basically the East Coast version of Synanon, which was a cult, and that David Deitch came out of Synanon, then then all the puzzle pieces got put together, and I saw the big picture. It's just one cult that kind of grew, spun off of another, basically. Synanon was a cult and a half. Right. So <laughs> oh, let yeah. me just let me just add something to that. So one of one of the things that not everyone who came out of Synanon moved on to replicate the mistakes that Synanon made. As a matter of fact, one of the things that David Deitch wanted to do to bring is the experience of Synanon's downfall and why it and how it became a cult so that Daytop would not duplicate that. Um, hence, his looking back in, in our interview with him on the challenges and the struggle, and I don't know if you're aware of the big split that happened in Daytop in the, in the mid-60s um, and what was behind that and why they kind of split off into two factions um, from each other. Um, but a lot of drama and intrigue 
Um, and again, it's like, you know, whenever you get humans involved in something, dealing with other human beings, it's like people's motives and, and, and ways and, and manners and what have you just get corrupted um, so easily um, for many different reasons, I guess. But Chuck Diedrich it, was a madman right from the get-go. Chuck Diedrich, yeah, Chuck Diedrich was a narcissistic, psychopathic, generally bad guy from from day one. But the Monsignor, I never blamed him. I always thought the Monsignor was like a very kind of like. I never thought he was a narcissist or anything. I always thought the Monsignor was like a well-intentioned but somewhat naive do-gooding priest who really kind right. of like didn't didn't. He got off into the deep end and didn't quite know what he was doing, and that's really evident when you read his book. I'm sure you've read uh, "You Can't Do It Alone." I think he says explicitly. He says they don't. Alex don't really have a drug problem. They have a baby problem, and that's just not helpful at all. Would you be surprised if I told you I'd never read it? No, because most people oh. haven't. Okay. No, I haven't but read the book. He says it very. He, he says that very explicitly. I, I wish I had a copy of it or I'd tell you what page it's on, but look it up for yourself. He says people don't have a drug problem. People have a baby problem, and what they really need to do is grow up. He says it just like that, and that, that's just not helpful at all. But on the other hand, I never thought that Monsignor was a bad guy. I just thought he was naive, you know, like a do-getting naive guy, right? Do you think um... – because his role from the early days changed drastically as he moved into the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and do you think he just became too um, – that as Daytop grew and grew and grew and grew, that he became too distant from the what was happening on the ground? Probably. I can't Within really Daytop? say yes or no to okay. I can't really say yes or no to that question. The best I can say is probably that that makes a lot of sense. Okay. That the farther removed he got, the worse the abuse became. But then, you know, it's not a, in that context, it's not abuse. We're doing it because we love you and we want to help you. So you can justify anything. So, it's, like, where do you draw the line? At what point does this so called treatment become abusive? Like, when they made me get up and dance in front of a room full of people and they said, well, we're going to st- sit here all morning until you dance. But we're doing it because we love you. I mean, I, I mean, I know what cognitive dissonance means, and I also know that most people are going to justify their behavior by changing their beliefs. And so the Monsignor justified this, and then he justified this, and then he justified that. And pretty soon even he's not sure what he thinks, where the line between therapy and abuse is because you justify everything so much to reduce dissonance. Everything you want to do is okay at that point. Right. So I'm not sure if you answered this, but so where are you at today in terms of just Brian and your life and so on and so forth? Well, I'm in a pretty stable position. I'm, I was, I'll tell you what, joining the Army was the best decision I ever made in my life. Because I, spent the, I spent most of the year 2005 in Iraq. And if they knew then what they know now, they would have never even let me in the Army in the first place. So what I'm saying is that 
I'm in a better place than ever today in general because I have a diagnosis. I've been in a lot of therapy, and I'm still in therapy, and I can see clearly what happened and how. So I'm in a right. pretty good state today. Does that answer your question? That answers my question, and I think uh, that'll be a good place to end for now. Um, hey, Brian, I, I appreciate your honesty, uh, your openness, um, sharing your experience with us. Um, some of it was hard to hard to hear, um, but necessary necessary to hear. <clears throat> So I really well, appreciate you. Your, you uh, go ahead. Thank you for your time and for this platform from which to tell my story. Well, you're you're very welcome, um, and we appreciate you coming on. And may not be the last time. So, call you. You know how to find me. Call me anytime. We we know how to find you. All right, Brian. Thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. You're welcome. God bless you. See you soon. You too. Bye bye. Thank you, Brian. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Well, Mr. Producer, why don't we take a quick break and then uh, come back and take care of some business before we close it up. Let's do it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick music break, and we will catch you all on the other side.
All right, folks, All right. We're, we're back. We're back. Um, and I, I, first and foremost, I'd like to say, Mr. Host, uh, a special thank you to Brian for coming on, uh, sharing his story. I can't imagine um, that's easy um, because, you know, it's one thing to share your story with individuals who've had similar experiences. Uh, it's another to share your story with those who are still working in some capacity that, that have ties to the organization and had an experience that, that was very different to that, um, you know, that, that takes some, some courage uh, to be able to come out and put that out on the line like that. So I appreciate him being honest with us and, and having him on. Well, not to toot our own horn, but we also are very aware that the experience that he just recounted happens it's happened to him and it happened it and it we're aware more so me more than you just because of the time difference um you know that's i've i've heard of that witnessed that and even when we were talking during the break about how hard it is sometimes to get staff to not do things that uh are cultish yeah, right. They may not know at the moment in time they're doing it that it's cultish, but it's cultish. Right. And I don't know if it's power tripping, um, not knowing, understanding how to use authority. I don't know what it is, um, but it, it happens, and I don't like it that it happens. Um, and as I was telling you, the people, you know, Eddie Hill, Felix Arroyo, Benny Cuevas, uh, et cetera, who trained me and other guys from my era, uh, they made it a point to make sure that uh, there were certain things that we didn't engage in because it was cult, you know, it would foster cult-like behavior. Right. So, okay, we can continue that conversation at a later point, but I, I echo your uh, thanks for Brian for coming on and sharing his story, and we'll certainly continue that conversation. Absolutely. Um, All right, uh, moving moving on to you've got a little uh, some updates for us. We got another Boeing uh, crashing down. No such thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, no hit hit us with it. You said you might have a little aviation update and a couple other updates. Yeah, so on the aviation front, first of all, we make sure that every night before you go to bed that you're on your knees praying for Boeing's survival during this uh, tough time. Um, but <laughs> so some good some, – some one positive news for Boeing is that the 737 MAX, which you and your wife are going to be flying on uh, without knowing it, is uh, being cleared to go back into service. Okay. So that's, so that's a good thing after two years. So the most heavily scrutinized scrutinized aircraft in history. So if you don't think it's safe, I don't know what to tell you. Well, I'll tell you, and, I, I, I want to see and, that thing take flight for about sure. a year, two years before I ever set foot in one of those death traps. I have no problem getting on one. The only reason why I don't like the 737 is just too small for me. I can't, it's hard for me to fit on them. But, yeah. hey, I'm the type of person that after TWA Flight 800 crashed in 1986, 
that summer, I got on the same type of 747 with TWA from San Francisco to New York with no problem. Anyway, an incident out of JFK on October 15th, a 777 taken off from JFK heading to South Korea. Um, let, me, let me frame this so you understand why I'm even bringing this up. Obviously, you know the traffic around John F. Kennedy in the air is some tremendous. A lot of airplanes. LaGuardia is right. close by, except New Jersey is close by, etc. And so what they do is they put speed limits on the aircraft they have to take off. So you can't, under 10,000 feet, you can't exceed 250 knots. So the problem with that is for a heavy aircraft like the 777, the window between stalling and continuing safe flight is a very narrow window, and that 250-knot speed is right on the edge, meaning that depending on the weight of that aircraft, 250 is not enough speed to stay airborne. This particular South Korean plane was too heavy, and at 250 knots at about, I don't know, they were about passing through 3,500 feet, went into a stall. It means that, for those of you who don't know, it lost lift and could no, was no longer able to fly. Um, so, obviously, when that happens, they got to push the nose down and kind of to create speed and go down to create speed and lift and then, you know, regain their, their lift under their wings. But, so, the preliminary mistake that was made by the pilots, unfortunately was most 777 pilots, when they know they're above a certain weight, request what's called a high-speed climb before they even take off. They don't have to worry about it. They can go over 250 knots. They can get up to 270 knots, 280 knots, and they don't have to worry about it. These guys didn't request that, got caught in a jackpot, and almost lost the aircraft. So, I thought that was an important dimension. It happens. Yeah, boy, I'll tell you, it, it, not not on not on my airplane. It doesn't. Uh, I can't. Uh, I can't. I can't even think about that. That the story better be out of my head within the next uh, within the next hour, or I'm going right back to white knuckling it. Well, this was on a. It doesn't matter. It was on a freighter. Uh, it wasn't a passenger plane. But it was on a freighter. But it doesn't matter. Still, it's the 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 what what really bothers me is the pilot mistake in not requesting a high speed climb, knowing how heavy they were, and that right. 250 knots was not going to be enough right, speed right. to maintain flight. So it's like, man, where where's your 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 head at? And they they found out that they missed so many opportunities to. The, they found out that the co-pilot inputted the weight incorrectly by 100 tons. It was supposed to be 360. He entered 260, so he made a, an error with a digit. And there were like three... <laughs> That's or, a hell of a digit to make an error with, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, at the, the speed you need at 360 tons versus 260 is significant. Okay. You didn't make an error by one in the ones column. You did it in the hundreds column. Right. Right. So, anyway, it happens. It's not the first time a case like that. There was one case of a, uh, 
a plane leaving out of Australia, another 777, by the way, um, and another error made in the weight calculation. This was a passenger aircraft, and the way they realized something was wrong is when they were trying to take off, when they rotate the plane up, the plane wouldn't rotate. It wouldn't leave the ground. So the pilot pushed the pilot pushed the, the full power, which they don't use on takeoff, so it can get up more speed. And by the time it got up in just enough speed, and they barely got off the ground, they still clipped one of the lights at the end of the runway. But they were able to get up, get up to altitude, circle around, and come back. Um, and they realized when they once they got back on the ground that there was a weight miscalculation. They the, the I mean, when you're heavy, you need more speed going down the runway. You need more distance to get up to speed. And so the plane was, they tried to take off before they even got up to a speed where the plane can gain flight. So this kind of stuff happens. You just don't hear mm. about it. Of course, yeah. I'm plugged in, so I hear about it. All right, that's aviation. All I right. Don't know if you've heard, I don't know if you've heard, Mr. Producer, but um, there's some kind of virus going around. Have you heard uh yeah, you know whispers. I've heard wh- whispers of it. Um, nothing mainstream, uh, but I, I have heard it discussed in the okay. background. Okay. Well, we've obviously been operating, at least here in California, which is just crazy. But um, as far as our program, we've been operating the same way since we were operating in April. Uh, we still aren't allowed to have visitors. Our clients are still doing virtual visits. Um, the mailman, UPS, FedEx still can't come into the facilities. Everything is dropped at the front door. Uh, everyone is temperature checked, screened, and the whole nine yards at every facility. So that's how we've been operating since, and uh, so far nothing has changed for us. Um, and it's funny because you have a whole significant number of your population now that that's all that they know. You know, that's, that's, that have come in since this thing started, and this is the only – that's all that they know. They don't know any other way and anything different from this. Yep. So, whether that's good or and, bad, and, I don't know. Yeah, and well, in some kind of way, right, without, the, without the, having the previous experience, it's an ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Yep. I think the biggest issue – really is the is not having the the face to face visits um, and so hopefully uh we can get get to that sooner than later because people like to see their families they like to get that you know support in person and all that good stuff and the last thing that I have or that I could remember is um if you recall, at one of our shows in the earlier part of the year, we were discussing how in California, at least, I think it's all over the country, it's going to be this way, that residential was being trimmed down from 90 days to 30 days. And the bulk of treatment was going to be focused on an outpatient and recovery residence. And that was supposed to start in January of 2021. So that has been officially pushed back to January of 2022, so we get a one-year reprieve um, yeah, from yeah. that. But it's going to happen. And, but because of um, this virus that you've been hearing whispers about, um, they've decided to formally push it back one year. 
Anything on your end, Mr. Producer? No. Um, other than, I mean, uh, the the year is good. Uh, good news for for our my end as well because um and I think we touched on this in another show and we might touch on it moving forward but um that we definitely have a, a the RR the recovery residents kind of segment will will end up kind of being the longest chunk in the continuum of treatment as we know it come January 2022 now um, and so it'll it'll that extra year will give us a little better time to prepare and wrap our minds around uh, what that might look like and what we need to do to put ourselves in the best position to deal with it. Um, uh, outside of that, no, nothing nothing major to report. Okay. Um, why don't we close it out then with some sports updates? All right. Yeah. You want to do, do? Do you got any particular sports updates you want to talk? Uh, NBA draft. Uh, do you want to talk about all of the uh, the devastating injuries in the NFL? Wh- wh- which place would you like to go first? Well, the combined record of my three teams is what? Oh, you guys are what? Zero uh, and thirty-nine. <laughs> I think the Jets are what? Zero and eleven, or zero and ten. Uh, yeah, they look like they're they're the the lead dog in the race to number one, if, if you will. Okay. Cowboys are three and seven, and the Giants are what three and seven? The same three and seven. So we're six and what's that? Six and twenty-four. 20, yeah, six and twenty-five. Okay. So nothing nothing much to talk about on football in my end. What about how those uh, Niners Niners doing? Yeah, not not a whole. Uh, so the the Forty Niners um, have set an NFL record for they they set two NFL records. Uh, one for the most starters um, having hit the IR in a single season, and one for the highest amount of cap space taken up on your roster by players on IR. Uh, And so needless to say, when you set NFL records in those categories, you're not doing very well. And uh, so we're not doing very well. Somehow uh, amidst all of that, I I believe we're four and six, four, four and five, four and six. Uh, But um, anyone who is, wise to the game and and follows the game knows that even that record is a little deceiving um, because while mathematically it would state we're in the playoff hunt, um, we're certainly in no, no shape to be competitive in the playoffs uh, with our roster and the injuries that we have. In fact, uh, exactly 50% of our wins came from uh, two of the three of the aforementioned uh, New York teams that we were just speaking of. Uh, thank you to them for that. Um, so, no, they're, they're not doing well. We've got quarterback controversies of Bruin, so we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, and then in the NBA – uh, your New York Knicks drafted the guy all the Warriors fans wanted, uh, and the Warriors uh, drafted seven foot one, uh, a, a left-handed center. So we'll see how that how that pans out. 
I don't have any comment on my Knicks right now. I don't know. I don't know what to think, what to say. Um, I'm just a jaded, uh, going on. <laughs> I don't know, almost 50 years of uh, futility. Um, <laughs> Until one of these draft picks pans out, you're not you're not putting your eggs in any draft picks basket, huh? Nope. <laughs> so I imagine oh, or, you're the voice of the rest of New York, and that's how everybody feels out there. Oh, yeah. That Obi Toppin is Obi not Obi Notin until he uh, until he shows something. Well, actually, most of my New York brethren, Nick fans, wanted a guard because they believe the Knicks have an overabundance of forwards. Um, wow. So who knows? Time will tell. Time will tell. Yep. Yeah, well I mean yeah, that that's all that's all I got on the uh on the sports front. Um not much to talk about it sounds like for either of our teams. None of us doing all that well. Uh although the NBA is slated to get back going in, in a little less than a month here, so uh we will have some NBA and we'll we'll see how that goes, but that about puts a wrap on the the sports front, and then uh, also uh, probably worthy of note before we wrap it up that we are, this is um, around our anniversary of our inaugural show, and so what are we, five years running now? Six. Six years running. So that's that's worthy of note. Let's get that down on the show so it goes into the archives. Absolutely, and uh, obviously this is our Thanksgiving week show. We always encourage our clients to uh, think about the things they want to be thankful for um, outside of, outside. you know, I always try and encourage them not to leave out being thankful that you are on a daily basis making the decision to invest in yourself, Um that sometimes gets overlooked. We're kind of all sometimes thinking exterior, um, but it's important that you're, every day that you are investing in yourself, you should thank yourself for doing that. Um, and, you know, Thanksgiving in our, in our common ground is going to be the same as it was in years past. We don't have visitors anyway, so. Right, right. <laughs> it's not like we have anything to worry about. Um, so, um We'll do what we do, uh, and uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll we'll do another show to close out the year, our new our traditional New Year's show, and um, take it from there. That's all I got. Perfect. All right. Well, that sounds good. Uh, it was a great show. We uh, were sorry that it took us as long as it did to get you all the the listeners another show here, but we're happy to be back on the air and uh, hopefully we'll get another show in uh, like the host said before, uh, before this year ends. And and that said, um, as always, uh, we wish folks a a safe uh, holiday week, a happy holiday week. Uh, Hope everybody can make the most of whatever their plans may be as I'm sure no one is kind of at, at this point in time, um, celebrating the way they might be celebrating under normal circumstances, but but we do hope that everybody still uh, finds a way to enjoy themselves this holiday season. 
Uh, we thank everybody, as always, for the ongoing support, for the folks who continue to listen, either live or uh, via the archives, uh, the callers who call in, and again, a special thanks to our guests that we had on today. Uh, and with that said, happy holidays, everybody, and we will catch you all on the flip side.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby.